What have I got? All right. It's Jeremy Zine, episode 25. Two five. Two five. The, the quarter, quarter century. The quarter century. There needs to be some kind of like partial celebration. Who would have thought we'd get to 25? I right? never thought we'd get to 25. <laughs> what, what's the anniversary? What's the 25? Ooh. Bauxite. Like, like rice? I think it's going to be bauxite. <laughs> yeah. I love those anniversary stones. <laughs> we can go or, together. We can go to Arkansas, celebrate bauxite. <laughs> yep. Our bauxite anniversary. We might skip 25. <laughs> uh, it is a, an evidence-based podcast. Uh, it's about a lot of things, but largely about science and research. We At times, we, we integrate <laughs> we other things. My name's Justin Zeltzer, and here he is the man who has tweeted exactly nothing in favor of China nor Hong Kong. Neither. Neither. <laughs> Neither. I refuse to, and you can't make me. Mr. Justin Bobbin. I'm here. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm, we're back. What, what do you, before we start talking science, because this is, as I mentioned, a science podcast. It's occasionally a science podcast. But we, no, no, but we also talk about evidence. It's about evidence, and it's about the world. And the NBA. What do you take on this whole um, NBA slash China's getting influence? Okay. Now you're thinking, I don't know what's going on. I know you know what's going on. Well, do I? We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Is this about... Um, well, you listen to Bill Simmons, don't you? I love Bill Simmons. I know. And he, would, he definitely... I would do, any, this. I would do He's all anything for Bill Simmons. I should listen to him talk about it. Yeah. I, I listen to his movie stuff. Not his sports stuff, but I should listen to everything he does. Cause he's, yeah, Bill Simmons is a sport commentator. And he's kind of gone sideways with a few things in the States. It, oh, he's a he's, renaissance man. And he's yeah. also maybe the most charismatic person in he's the entire amazing. world. He's amazing. He's actually really amazing. And I actually think maybe we should... Oh, I we should ask, ask him. To, if we, can we join the ringer? Or we should ask him I, if he wants to join Ironworks. That's I told really Will, as our friend Will Burrows, like, last week that I would do anything to be... A member of the ringer. <laughs> so for you to mention the ringer, I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm so deep in the ringer right now. I love it. They're like a family to me. Yeah. Well, what's your take? NBA, China, LeBron, the owner Fuck of the Rockets. <laughs> Fuck who though? China. Oh, okay. That's our stance. Is that our podcast? So are they going to be burning? Uh, China won't be listening to any of our future podcasts no. <laughs> now. We're going to be just burning been. effigies of yeah. you and me in the streets yeah. of Guangzhou. Let the NBA be free. <laughs> you reckon? That's what I say. Yeah. No, it's funny. I find it really yeah. ironic that... It's about ratings, right? And it's about viewership. What's that's about money? About, about money. Yeah. Well, all that. Well, that in, solely. But the funniest thing is that it's its capitalist drive that requires it to bow down to a communist regime. Yeah. Do you know how, how weird that is? It's very weird. For those who aren't following, you've got to be following this. This is probably one of yeah. the most interesting pieces of sports news Probably in the last 10, 20 years, really. I mean, I can't think of one that's, that's more kind of economically and, and you engaging. you know that I don't like sports. No. But I like things about sports. Yeah. Well, this is exactly that. Exactly. It's a, it's a clusterfuck, man. It I love is. it. I it love is. it. I'm yeah. really keen to see how this pans out. And then, you know what happened with LeBron? But it's happening in all, all areas, right? It's happening in video games, apparently, as well. Like, yeah. All these people who are doing things in support of Hong Kong, China's just locking them out. Not... On the Jeremy Zion podcast, nope. we are no shill of we the communist regime. We love, no, but we love China pure and simple. <laughs> That's true. They don't we just to, love them. They don't need to give us. They cash. don't need to pay us anything. We Damn. just love them. We love Chinese food. We love Chinese dance. Yeah, like remember we went to go see that uh, that great stage show, the the magic of Fei Shuan. We <laughs> <laughs> did too. What's it called? Uh, what? No, hold on. What do you mean? You know the, that 
You know that thing you'll see on buses? It's like every country you go to, they're on the way or they've just been. Oh, that, um, that, like Chinese dance Yeah, thing. yeah, I know. Um, fuck. <laughs> it's everywhere. Like every country I go to, it's either on the way in or it's just left. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it later on. I know, it, I know what it is. Don't worry. Let it come to you. All right. Well, what are we talking about today? What's our... Um, uh, well, what are you talking about today? Well, I'm going to look at animal studies and the mm-hmm. relation between, well, the generalizability of animal studies to the human condition. Are you going to rubbish all my previous animal studies? That 100%. I've yeah. We're going to look at... Are you, are you suggesting that my PhD may not be translatable to humans? Well, no, this is why I'm bringing it up because I know you... Because you won't have my have PhD to... stripped of me. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think... talking Sydney Uni. It's true. But I, I feel like you're going to be the person with some authority who'll be able to tell me about animal studies and whether i mean in historically we have used animal studies to great effect and there's been some amazing um discoveries made because we've tested any of my reviewers are listening i think they're completely translatable and completely valid they're a great way to (laughs) conduct science preclinical trials fantastic i want to look at some of those um yeah some of the discoveries that were made Mm. thanks to testing on animals Mm -hmm. uh animal studies i think is probably a more pc way of doing it but also look at when we can jump to the conclusions too quickly based on animal studies, where we think it's going to translate to humans and it don't. It do not sometimes. So that's my little study today. What's yours? Mine. Shen Yun. Shen, Shen Yun. Shen Yun. I wasn't far off. I see. That was the thing. I knew I just had to like forget about yeah, it. I, was, I think you just swapped like two letters, but you're right. Shen Yun. Yeah. We should go we see should Shen Yun. We should definitely go and see Shen Yun. Um, we should take up Shen Yun classes. <laughs> I'm basically there. I, you know I do Qigong. You just speed it up by 30%. You're yeah. doing Shen Yun. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about mosquitoes. Ah. It's one of the Sam Harris's great questions at the end of his interviews is, uh, if you could get rid of mosquitoes, would you? Well, <laughs> yeah. we're trying to do it right now with some science. And the question is, are there any problems with it? And how are we doing it? Are we doing well enough? Right. Yeah. How do mosquitoes relate to albinos? Uh, they bite them too. Okay, right. Yeah. That's just, just an unrelated question. Yeah, so I'm doing a little... So, you know, this is a little, little uh, genetic mosquito experimentation stuff that's happening right now. And there was a big paper in Nature just a few weeks ago. Kind of uh, maybe a little bit of an expose on but some of the recent genetic engineering of mosquitoes. So. Okay, but it's, it's more than just the hypothetical situation. No, of- it's happening. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's happening. Okay. They, they've been doing it now for a number of years. Um, and so we'll talk about sort of the effectiveness of it mm-hmm. and what maybe collateral damage is being proposed. So that's Interesting. It. <laughs> All right, let's talk science. What do you reckon? Yeah. I'll throw you some music. Music! So, do you want to go first with your articles, or do you uh, want me to do the? Uh, yeah, your, sure. I don't really mind. 
would you know about mosquitoes? Oh, mosquitoes. I like how you start these. Mm-hmm. Um, I I know that, look, these are some things that haven't been scientifically proven. These are just my own anecdotes about mosquitoes. <laughs> they itch. They, they do, but they're also really dumb at the beginning of the season. Like right now, I've seen a few mosquitoes. Yeah. They're really dumb. You can kill them real easy, like, uh-huh. and they don't really bite. They're just sort of hanging around. I think in the middle of I, summer. I'm with you. So what you're thinking is, they you want to get rid of them, kill them all at the beginning of the summer. Yeah. Fish in a barrel. That's it. But I'm keen to know if other people have that same experience because I, I, it's it's ironclad for mine. Like yeah. right now, they'll buzz around my head and then all of a sudden they'll just sit there on the wall and I just... <clears throat> done. And do you find but that by the, the end of summer... Oh, they're insane. They've evolved like... They've evolved s- and, they've, and they... Like a superhuman yep. degree of intelligence where they just can't be killed? I think maybe it's just a case of like, they've just kind of woken up and it takes them a couple of weeks to just be like... Whoa. Well, yeah. Do you think they're even the same mosquitoes at the end of summer? What's their life cycle? I think they're. I thought they lasted like days. What? Yeah. No. Maybe. I should did you study this. this? Did, aren't you going to share all this information with us? <laughs> I didn't research it that deeply. <laughs> okay, it's good. It's probably important. Yeah. All right. right so, so what, what else right. do I know about mosquitoes? Yeah. Um, what about in terms of uh, world health? Well, they they carry diseases. Yep. One of which that I can't contract because I've got thalassemia. Well, you can't contract it as easily as someone else, but That's I true. think Malaria. you can still get it. Uh, yeah, and also there's two different kinds of types of thalassemia. One which protects against uh, malaria, the other one does not, and I actually don't know which one I have, so I might not be able I to think be protected. You've probably got thalassemia minor. Is my uh, no, it's actually alpha and beta thalassemias that matter. My, if I have thalassemia major, I'm, right. I don't have that because that means I'm yep. dead by about 20 years old. Yep. But thalassemia minor splits into minor alpha and minor oh, beta. Oh, right. And does I your brother have it too? No, he doesn't. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Anyway, we digress. Well, so yeah, you, so you, you, you carry malaria, malaria, dengue fever, yeah. the uh, the infamous Zika virus. Oh, yep. Right. That yeah, was with big the babies news like two or three years ago. Mutated and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, think of other. So the result of all that is that mosquitoes are the greatest killer to humans. The greatest animal killer to humans. Right. More than sharks. Yeah, that, well, that makes sense. I think I, I think dogs kill more people than sharks. I had I had a gadunkin with a friend of mine, Marcus, as you know. A gadunkin donut. Yeah, a thought experiment. And we were deciding whether if all the animals in the world could come together and try to defeat humankind yep. in, in a conscious way, like they all just like somehow managed every single animal in yep. the world, could they come together yep. and would they kill us all? Would they be able to kill us all? And we decided that mosquitoes is pro- are probably going to be the linchpin to them trying to do that. So, So anyway... There have been uh, a bunch of ideas about how to get rid of these mosquitoes, how to control their populations, yep. right? And because not only do we have lots of mosquitoes, but we also have mosquitoes that are introduced um, into new uh, geographies. So you have introduced species. So mm-hmm. you have the whole introduced species effect as well as the, the diseases, right? So they're offsetting the ecosystem. They're you know, multiplying at ridiculous rates and carrying these viruses. Um, so what have we done to get rid of them? I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what Bill Gates was working on? One of the companies that Bill Gates, you know, Bill Gates is all anti-malaria, right? I'll trust you. Yeah, yeah, that's one of his big things. Yeah, you might know him as a computer man. I do. Yeah, yeah. No, he's all about malaria. Okay. Yeah. So he, um, one of the companies he was investing in was making a laser that could selectively see and target like malaria-carrying mosquitoes, and it would just zap them in the air. So it was just like killing them. But with a gun. so, so it, it would be able to scan the yeah. air. Yeah. And not zap 
them escape. I, I, look, it would probably just zap them all. Yeah, I figured that. Yeah, it seems a waste of engineering to find yeah. the ones with the malaria. Okay. Yeah. But um, yeah, they were just looking at like little targeted. I don't think that one really went very far. But um, we've also tried to introduce sterile uh, males into the population. So okay. as they yep. breathe, they you know that doesn't work. The latest sort of plan, and what seems to be the most successful plan, um, is the introduction of a genetically modified uh, species. So the mosquito that we're talking about in general is a mosquito called Aedes aegypti, uh, which is obviously from sort of the, the, the Nile region, yep. uh, hence why we tend, tend to transmit West Nile virus, okay. amongst the many other pathogens that it tends to spread. So Oxitec, so, yep. O-X-I-T-E-C, is a company that has introduced a gene into this species of mosquito. Now, what this gene does is it, number one, makes that mosquito live less long than the average mosquito. Got it. It only changes males. They only inject it into males. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is when these males mate with female mosquitoes, and by the way, female mosquitoes are the ones that bite, not the males, right. their offspring are, don't make it to maturity. So their offspring die as juveniles. And so this has so far proven to be quite effective. They've run a couple of experiments, um, I believe, in Brazil, Cayman Islands, Malaysia, Panama. And they found that in those areas, they've reduced the population between 80 and 95% of the mosquito population. How do they get the disease to the mosquitoes? Uh, they do it in the lab. So they... They literally they grow basically a new strain, a new genotype of mosquito in the lab wow yeah now how they actually knock in that gene how they splice that new gene into the mosquito there's a few different ways they can do it um i mean i guess you could use crispr in my phd stuff yeah we use genetically modified mice like they're not very they're not uncommon modified but in my head when when you say they're created i'm picturing them like being created from nothing like 3d printed (coughs) no no so you take the you take existing mosquitoes like they capture well, a bunch of mosquitoes. It depends on how they, there's different ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, the easiest way to explain it is using CRISPR because you know CRISPR is that new thing that's been around for maybe ten years now. And people talk about CRISPR as sort of the latest and greatest way to modify genes. Have you heard of CRISPR? Well, that's what I put my zucchinis and broccoli into most mm, is weeks, not. But um, okay. So from all my animals that we bred for my experiment, we would knock in certain genes or delete certain genes. Okay. Right? You take the mice, yeah, and then you do you inject them with things. Do you get them? Well, to- what you do now with CRISPR is it uses viruses, and what we know that viruses we've discussed this before. Ah, they the can show, change DNA. They can change the DNA, right? They can insert themselves ah. into your DNA, and they can actually rewrite certain segments of DNA. Right. So CRISPR basically uses those viruses to go inside and cut out segments of DNA, and they control. Basically, they've grown these viruses to distribute the right DNA to the right spot. So they, they know what they're looking for. Got it. So they read the DNA that they normally do. They find that's what they're looking for, and they either cut something out or put something in. So that's the same situation with the mosquitoes. You and if you do, if you have them like that, then yeah. you can. If you're using CRISPR, then you can actually just inject that virus into the animal in question. Yeah, in a very direct yeah, way. Yeah, and right? it's generally the, it's tissue specific, so you might inject it into the gonads if you're trying to actually induce a change in its progeny but you'd inject it into the kidney if you want to do something to the kidneys it's very localized to what you're injecting to um not as easy to do sort of i think um body-wide um sort of switching if you inject this into the gonads of the animals you would then change the genetics of the offspring of those animals and then 
in those animals, it would be a body-wide change. Oh, I see. Because okay. yeah, because yeah. when it's injected into the gonads, yeah. you are just the gonad at the time. If so you change for in, in, in human, if you change the gotcha. sperm, that cell becomes every other cell. Yeah, got it. Right. So, anyway, so they make these mosquitoes. They send them out, and they slowly decimate the population by just being non-viable reproducers. Yeah, and they can drop it down significantly. Now, the idea with this is that unlike some other technologies to get rid of the mosquitoes whether you're introducing like viruses into the mosquitoes or other diseases or using sprays or pesticides of some sort, you shouldn't have any collateral damage, right? Because you're not actually, number one, you shouldn't really be affecting any other gene that you don't want to with yeah. this. So you're not going to be making these superhuman or super mosquitoes. Um, you shouldn't be getting any other animals and you shouldn't be sort of changing um, the ecosystem in any other way other than just reducing the sheer numbers of mosquitoes. So it seems to be a pretty perfect solution. And so they've been doing this around the world in a couple of, sort of controlled trials to see how it works. So that's all well and good. That's just background information. Got it. The study that we're looking at today is one that was published, I believe, on September 12th of this year. The article is called Transgenic 80s Aegypti Mosquitoes Transfer Genes into a Natural Population. So did you catch that? Yeah. What they're saying? I'll recite it. Transgenic something something mosquitoes transfer yeah. into population uh, don't worry about it yeah so what this paper claims is that they went down to one of the towns where they were oxytech was releasing these mosquitoes yep. now between 2013 and 2015 they were releasing like hundreds of thousands of mosquitoes every month into the area surrounding jacobina in brazil and so far and they claim with again very strong effect in terms of reducing the native mosquito population what this paper said was they went there and they started to number one measure the counts of the mosquitoes they also measured um, how many mosquitoes survived. So we know that this this genetic sort of fiddling tends to reduce the survivability of even the ones they, they created, not just the ones that they make. So not just the progeny, but the actual experimental right. mosquitoes. Yeah. So they want to see how many actually survived. So how effective were they, you know? Um, how do how they many? Do that? They can't. Well, they, well, they, they, they catch them. microchip them. No, they go and catch them and they look for, they look for, they uh, genotype them. Holy shit. And what Oxitec did was... This is so beyond my understanding of how it's possible. And Oxitec also labeled that gene with a fluorescent marker, which means that they could also quite easily... Mosquitoes that had that gene were also fluorescent. Now we're talking. So they they could also identify them and say, this mosquito is one of the ones that was released, or this is one of the ones that was a progeny of those mosquitoes. And so they could track the effectiveness of this uh, intervention. And they could also see... They didn't just look for that neon gene. They looked for all the genes in this mosquito and all the genes in the mosquitoes that they found. They were collecting, obviously, like thousands of mosquitoes. Because they wanted to see, were any other genes besides the intended ones being transferred from these mosquitoes into the local mosquito population? The concern being that, again, maybe some random mutation that you're inserting from your experimental mosquitoes might turn those mosquitoes into a superpopulation. Right, yeah, maybe, yeah. That are more maybe resistant to pesticides or to other diseases or make them breed stronger whatever. the chances of that must be minuscule because they, as we know they, they, most mutations are lethal 99.999 percent of, of random mutations yeah. are going to be lethal so yeah. it just happened they're just dotting their eyes crossing their t's they are making sure that it's not one of these that happens yeah. to make them super mozzies yeah so what they found was that only three to five percent of the mosquitoes that were released uh, actually survived to be able to reproduce Okay. So you got you got to do a lot of work to even get three to five percent 
to actually reproduce. What is? The- but even then, what we do know is that I think their results supported the original claims that there were like 80 to 90 percent decreases in the local population. So a three to five percent survival of your introduced species can still decimate that population. Well, the missing factor there is what is the um, uh, fecundity of the native population in the first place, right? Mm. So maybe that's pretty good. It's three to five percent. Is that good for mosquitoes? Yeah, exactly. Who knows? I don't know. The other thing they found, and this is what the paper is really about, is what we just spoke about, which is when they were analyzing the genomes of all these other mosquitoes, of the surviving mosquitoes, they found that not only did some of them carry the, the mutation that killed them, but they found other signs of genes that were not part of this neon killing gene, just other background genes from the introduced mosquitoes. So, sorry, there was a transfer from the introduced to the native population of yeah. other genes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That didn't seem to be lethal. And so this paper is very skeptical about the collateral damage of this uh, of this intervention. Skeptical of the collateral damage, or, well, or wary of the collateral. Wary, yeah, skeptical of the of the benefits outweighing the uh, the consequences. Got it. Right. Got it. Yeah. So they're saying, look, you clearly don't know as much about this as you say you do. We don't know what's going on. You're introducing other genes into this species. Are we sure this is going to cause whole new problems? And I did some reading about this, and a bunch of people are writing going, you've missed the whole point. Like, that is, the data sound, what they found, seems no one's arguing with what they've found with the data and their genotyping and everything else. In fact, almost everything they found was already published in Oxitec's initial publications on the technology. Okay. So the 3 to 5%, the, the, the lateral transmission of certain, or transfer of certain genes, Oxitec was already all over it, and they've gone ahead knowing that information. So number one, this paper, as well-researched as it is, doesn't seem to be bringing anything particularly new to the table. So it's not quite as scandalous as they'd like it to be. Right. And number two, what one guy said was, and this, I thought this was really this was probably the most salient point, is if there is any side-to-side transmission from the introduced to the native species, the only gene they actually changed is the one that's lethal. He's like, so if they get that one, well, that's great because it's lethal. And that's the whole point of the program. If they get another gene, well, that's just regular old mosquito gene. It's not, they didn't do anything else to these mosquitoes to make them pesticide proof or super breeders or anything else. They've just made them lethal for breeding. He said, so, well, worst case scenario, they're just regular old mosquito genes. And best case scenario, it kills them because it's some other random mutation, which shouldn't be there. So odds are it's also going to be a lethal gene. So really, given that the intention is to kill the mosquitoes, there's really no downside to what they're discussing of being this sort of... The 99.99% of mutations being deadly slash mm. bad for the organism. Yeah. Is he basically just saying, yeah, look, if there is a mutation, yeah, it's going to be bad for it anyway. The objective is to kill them. So what are we worried well, about? Well, he's saying, well, look, what we know is the, because the mosquito, the, the gene came from a living, otherwise breathing mosquito, and it's only got one lethal gene that's been injected into it, it's probably just regular old like brown-eyed mosquito genes. Right, okay. Did, yeah. That was the gene that killed the first mosquito. Probably won't kill the other one, but if it mutates itself or if it gets mistranslated or whatever happens, yeah, it's probably just going to kill it before it gives it superpowers. Yeah. He said, so there's really sort of a misinterpretation of the data here. It okay. doesn't seem to be nearly as scandalous or as dangerous as it says. In fact, all things considered, it just seems to be a very, so far, a very successful technology. My, my interest comes into yeah. it. I mean, I'm not sure if you're going to get there, but talking about whether it affects the ecosystems in ways that we haven't predicted and well, all that kind of stuff. Well, the thing is but that the mosquitoes are targeting, which is this um, 
uh, Aegis aegypti, is an introduced species, right? So they're doing this down in Brazil, but this is an Egyptian mosquito. Okay. So all they're doing is winding back this introduced species. You know, we, we know from Australia alone that we have huge issues with non-native species that have been introduced here, right? Mm. Canadians. Canadians. Greeks. Yeah. Greeks in particular. Yeah. Um, it's no, really how I could only say, like, white-skinned races in the joke. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, know. I, I, I could have made that joke about anyone, but it had to be white-skinned. See, this is... Every species... The tyranny, the tyranny of uh, yeah. <laughs> being white. <laughs> Uh, so Every white person here is, is an introduced species, yeah. but pretty cool stuff. I love it, especially I, I love, because just, it blows my mind how like intricate we can go with all this kind of mm. genetic stuff. Like I, I'm still just flabbergasted that you can get knock-in genes. The idea you can just yeah, we, should, we took some mosquitoes, we <laughs> just knocked in a couple of genes, Easy. A couple of genes we've designed. Yeah, it's going to turn them you know into killing machines yeah. for their own breeds and stuff. But I heard a really interesting story just a couple of days ago about uh, feral hogs in the States. Mm-hmm. Didn't know anything about feral hogs. Do you know about feral hogs? Nope. Feral hogs came from Spain back with like DeSoto, like hundreds of years ago. Okay. And I, they, I, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, that makes, makes sense, sense yeah. right? They're brought in by DeSoto and they were basically brought because pigs eat like almost anything and they reproduce like crazy. So one pig can reproduce by six months. And they can have like litters of 14. It's insane, right? right? So think about how rapidly that population can reproduce. Yeah. And the idea was that they would release these pigs into the, into the, into the new um, settled land. And they could just eat acorns and trees and roots and whatever else. And they'd just be in the area. They can just go and hunt and grab them whenever they wanted to. They, were just, like, they didn't have to raise them. They didn't have to tend to them. They could like just go and get free get food them forever. Yeah. Awesome. Over a hundred, a couple hundred years, there's like millions and millions now of feral hogs in the U.S. And they're just like... They're aggressive and they're wild and they just trample Where through properties. Where in the US though? Like obviously not in Apparently the like stuff, 35 but... states wow. have feral hogs now. Okay. Now, they're such a big problem. But they're, 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 okay, they're good eating. They're good eating if you catch them. And here's the thing. But how's that so difficult people, to catch them these days? Well, just fucking... People started to hunt blam. them. People started to hunt them and they're tons of fun, right? But apparently like they gather in flocks of like thousands sometimes. And so they're people in helicopters with assault rifles shooting them right yeah. which sounds like a lot of fun right <laughs> and it, it it is a lot of fun we respect there the is, <laughs> yeah. there is I'm picturing a lot of our mates who are like very pro in the animal yeah. activism movements and stuff yeah not enjoying the fact no. that, we, that you're describing this as fun well no you can see how people would find it fun let me put it that way uh, yeah okay right but here's the issue even a couple years ago there weren't nearly as many states that had these pigs in them, these feral hogs, and they've spread a lot faster than you'd expect them to spread naturally over the last couple of years versus the last 300 years. And what they found was the states that have them have endorsed basically free-for-all killing of these animals to keep them in control. Texas alone, I think, has like a million are killed a year, and they would need to double that number to keep them under control. Wow. That's wow. how fast they're growing, yeah. right? So they're like, just do whatever you want. So people are now, their whole industry is built now around feral pig or feral hog hunting tours where you can go and blow them up. You can use assault rifles, bows and arrows. It's just like a complete and utter murderous free-for-all. But here's the thing. Yeah. This is the most interesting thing of all. And it comes from my, I don't know, continuing interest in evolution, right? Mm -hmm. We're creating super hogs by doing so, right? Like if we're telling everyone to just kill the slowest, easiest to kill hogs, right? Apparently they're crazy smart. Well, they have to be, right? Yeah. We're actually creating the smartest, the best, most, hogs. yeah, yeah, 
which is which is fascinating. Do you know what else we're doing? We're actually literally spreading them as well. How so? Because states that didn't have hogs and are seeing how uh, how economically viable it is to have hog hunting economies have gone and smuggled hogs across their border and populated their states with hogs with the intention of having hog economies. Wow. So but what what is so the, the very, primary so the, financial like boon of having people trying to hunt them? Like you I make money it. by being if you run a hunting tour, you you bring yeah, you yeah. bring people on for hunting trips, and so you make, you make money out of it. But surely there's destruction. I mean, these pigs are eating stuff, and they're probably, probably. destroying. Oh things yeah, I know the collateral damage is huge, and that's not being considered by the people they're bringing them over. So one of the people who was speaking about this, I heard recently, said we shouldn't be advocating killing them at least in this way, because as long as you have a financial incentive for them to be around, you'll never get rid of them, right? Now, yeah. mosquitoes, there's no financial incentive to keep them around. No one's having fun killing mosquitoes. And, the, right. you know, so yeah. we have to use something genetic. Although I do the one-handed catch. That's my that's my move. I don't do the two-handed slap, like the, the clap. Nope, I'm a one-handed uh, too. Really? Miyagi I thought style. it was just me. No. There's no skill in the clap. Well, for me, I find I can get the mosquito easier if I go forwards and try to clasp mm-hmm. it as opposed to trying to judge three dimensions and yep. clap together my hands. Yep. So I might grasp it by necessity, but you do it just because you want to be like... Skill. You know, like you sensei. Mr. Mr. Miyagi style, yeah. 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 yeah, like a Jedi. Yeah. If they had mosquitoes in space, <laughs> which I think are... Our, uh, our, That's plan, really our plan B is just move to space and leave the mosquitoes behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If all, if, if all else fails, we leave the hogs, the mosquitoes, the cane toads, and the... Uh, and the catfish yeah. behind. I love the idea that we're going to leave the planet for the sake of the mosquitoes. It's yep. like, Jesus, like, we were dealing with everything, but mosquitoes, mosquitoes. man, fuck. So itchy. Let's try Mars. <laughs> and someone brought it along for mosquito hunting tours. But uh, I think that ultimately, based on how well this has gone so far, and I could be made to look like a fool in a couple of years when who knows what's happened through this genetic you know, engineering, um, that that may be the solution to all these introduced species. Yeah. To introduce species-specific uh, lethality or breeding issues, they will knock out the species and only that species. Yep, I dig. Cool stories. Mm. All right, well, we're going to have a little break and then we're going to come back and I'm going to look at... Uh, well, we're talking animals right now. You're going to look at me. I'm going to look at you, but we're going to talk about uh, animal testing. Well, no, what do you call it? Animal S- studies. Science. Science, yeah. We're only hard C's here <laughs> yeah. on Jeremy's Iron. Yeah, hard questions and hard C's yeah. here at J.I. Here's a question. Before we start my section, yeah. Um, what is your favorite like um, servo selection chocolate? You might tend to get if I go to servos, Haribo gummy bears. That's not food. It's made of real fruit. <laughs> you want red and green, and like no pineapple, apple. I can't stand them, dude. I've seen you. I've seen you eat them, buy them, and eat them. And I have you ever seen me eat them in the morning in my bed when I've fallen asleep with them? 
<laughs> and they're stuck to me. <laughs> I can picture it. I'm not saying it, but I, I can picture it. It's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so good. Do you, do you actually have a bag? Okay, we're in your place right now. If I look, I don't have one now. No, I'm, I'm on a break. Okay, but like self-imposed. Yeah, but like Haribo. Yeah, I've definitely gone through periods. I've bought like a big bag and I've just gone to bed with them and woken up and reached over and grabbed another handful and gone to work. <laughs> yeah, but you know I love like junk food breakfast, ice cream. Gummy bears. That's pretty much it. Yeah. It's those, good. Those are my favorite breakfasts. Well, for people oh, listening, um, he's a doctor. You can't, like, you've got a podcast talking about health and nutrition. Exactly. Often, so go out there, get some gummies. Only Haribo, I recommend. Okay. And we're not sponsored by them yet. <laughs> yet. Yeah. All right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, let me tell you about my, um, okay. my studies. In the news over the last maybe oh, two or three weeks, yeah. I've noticed there's been a lot of, like, studies that breached sort of commercial television or in other other kinds of media where they'll kind of talk about through. Right, broken through that's right yeah. so this one's about blue light mm-hmm. and we've talked about blue light quite recently mm. yeah, we did a good episode on blue light yep so prolonged exposure to blue light such that such as that which emanates from your phone computer and household fixtures yeah could be affecting your longevity even if it's not shining in your eyes mm-hmm. so New research suggests that blue wavelengths from all of our devices and stuff um, damage cells in the brain as well as our retinas. And yeah, that's that's the finding, right? Yeah. That is the headline that I saw bandied about on Mm -hmm. these. It was on a news report, but then it was also, I found it online as well. So you reached for your blue blockers right away. Yeah. But funny, we were talking about mosquitoes. Call up Jeff Kahn and ask to have your, uh, your lenses... Your eyeball swapped out for blue blocking cataract lenses. Yeah, but the, the key piece of information missing here is that the study was done on flies. Oh. So it sounds like we're talking about humans here, but no, it's no. done on flies. Yeah. So they were subjected to daily cycles of 12 hours in light and 12 hours in darkness. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a study that we're, we're asked to generalize from yeah. flies to humans. And flies, which already have short lifespans. Yeah. And exactly. so you're, I can't imagine that the the variance between the experimental and the non-experimental flies would be huge, which means there must be huge fuzzy error involved yeah. in that as well, right? Yeah, but th- this is just one of the studies I wanted to bring up. Like, So this, this is the, the first point one. Yeah. Point two, here's another one. Um, this, again, came up on the same site that I was looking at for mm-hmm. interesting science news. Mm-hmm. This one is about compulsive eating. Oh, and yeah. so it comes up with this compulsive eating thing. And we've talked about this on the show as well. With I mean, I, I, sometimes I binge eat. And I'm trying to figure out what... It's not binge that. eating, but you, you eat compulsively. I do. Snack. Yeah, I do. Compulsive snacker. I am. Yep. Carrots. So I read this and I'm like, oh, I want to read about this. This seems interesting. So yep. I'll read you the headline. Mm-hmm. In order to better understand compulsive and uncontrollable eating, they performed a series of experiments on two experimental models. One, one group received high sugar chocolate fa- flavored diet for two days a week and a standard control diet in the remaining of the week. So there's mm-hmm. one group that was given these sugary diets twice a week. The other group just had the normal diet Seven days a week. Right. That is word for word what was written there, right? Doesn't say anything about the fact that they're rats, right? This is the, this is what's, what's being put in the media, right? But we're talking about rats here. And I didn't know that before I kept reading to the next line where I started going, this seems wildly unethical because what they did was that after they put them on these diets, it tells you that what they did was they subjected to both groups to amphetamines. And mm-hmm. they said both groups took amphetamines, blah, blah, blah. And I'm reading this. I'm like, what? 
what kind of ethics has this gone through <laughs> that you could enlist participants in an active group and a control group and say, all right, now we're all taking amphetamines. <laughs> and it doesn't say rats anywhere. And I had to go to the study, which... The thing is, you say what kind of ethics would permit this and you, you relaxed when you saw it was rats? Of course. Having done rat and mouse surgeries and having gone through the ethics procedure for each of those, it is rigorous, man. Yeah. Like, they, I think they get treated better than humans. Yeah. It would be easier to do that study on humans. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. You just get volunteers and they'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, hit me up. Amphetamines. <laughs> Whereas the ethics committees are like, yeah, these rats don't know anything about amphetamines. You can't ask the rats to volunteer for these amphetamine experiments. Yeah. So, look, the, the results of this particular study was fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the group that was cycled between the sugary foods yep. and the more boring types of food became less sensitive to. Things generally, yeah. So when they took like the tickling, amph- well, when they took the amphetamines, they were like less affected than the rats that were on the normal diet all the way along. Yeah. So the control group, which is the normal diet group of rats, became very hyperactive after receiving amphetamine, and the cycled group, mm-hmm. the ones that had the sugary cycling in and yeah. out, the binge eat, non-binge eat, yeah, turned out they were l- less affected. So the analogy they're trying to draw here is that if you go through the cycle of eating a lot and trying to like restrict it and eating a lot, restrict it, this kind yeah. of like controlled, control, if you can call it controlled binging or whatever, right? Yo-yo. You're basically reducing the ability of your brain, your, your brain's pleasure centers mm-hmm. are being numbed because you're overloading on sugars or whatever yeah. at a particular point. Yeah, so that, that is the theory behind what they're trying to say, right? Of course, the media picks this up and emits every reference to rats. So I guess what I wanted to talk to you about because you've, done some experimenting mm-hmm. on rats for work yep. and for pleasure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, that's a joke, by the way. What are some of the big achievements do you know of that in terms of medicine that have come out of testing on animals? Like I've found a couple. There's um, insulin therapy for diabetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was developed, I think that's one of the big ones. Yeah, it was developed from... In, I mean, this sounds pretty dodgy and it was done in the 1800s. So presumably you wouldn't be able to get this across the line now. No. no. But they uh, injected dogs with cells from the pancreas of other animals. So they're basically experimenting on dogs. And they, through that, came up with uh, insulin, which is obviously a widely used drug now for diabetics. Mm -hmm. Uh, More recently, there's genetically modified mice were used to develop cancer immunotherapy drugs, which was used in the last couple of years to cure AFL star Jared Roughhead's cancer on his lip. Right. Yep. Have you got scenarios that you know of, um, discoveries that were made through the use of animal testing? Because I want to start with the idea that this is actually a very useful method to come up with treatments and medicines, etc. Am I aware of any major breakthroughs that used animals? Yeah, I, I kind of wanted to know a bit more about the situations where animal studies have actually resulted in widely used medicines uh, or treatments. In my area... Um, which is orthopedics. Which is orthopedics. In particular, sort of pediatric bone disease. Yeah. What we do know is that we've come up with some pretty good models of certain diseases um, for brittle bones and things like that. And we have actually come up with some treatments that have made a big difference for kids um, using certain chemicals or certain drugs um, that we tried first in animals and then we transla- translated those to humans. So um, you've done a PhD and, and I did. you used some of that in your PhD. I did. So I, I, used some, I used some of those techniques <coughs> and some of those animals and some of those drugs in my PhD and as well as some other um, agents and other different kinds of mice in my PhD. I actually wrote a paper about the translatability of certain animal models ah. to human sort of clinical translation. 
I've been using the term generalizability, but is translatability the translatability. better Translatability. Yeah. It's okay. like clinical translatability like or trans- translational science or is yeah. kind of, I think, the uh, the nomenclature Ooh. that we prefer. Okay. So um, in my, my PhD was largely about scoliosis, mm-hmm. which is kind of a curved spine. Um, in particular, scoliosis in the setting of a certain genetic disease. Now, that's all well and good. Now, we know with that genetic mutation is the cause of that disease we know we've known about it for 30 or 40 years um and i'll give you the background because this will help i think illustrate why animal models can be so fraught we use it because we don't really have anything better that's kind of ethical Uh, use the the technique of testing things on animals yeah so you really the way the scale goes you first you try things theoretically, whether it should or doesn't make sense that this would work or not work. You don't right. just throw things kind of, you know, scattershot at the animals or at, at humans. And then you typically would then try that in vivo. That's uh, in, so in, in vitro, a, rather. That's in a Petri dish, essentially. The, yeah. So, so you, you get a bunch cells. of cells. Yeah, so you take the cells that you're in question that you're trying to modify. And you can just drop the drug or whatever you're trying onto those cells and see how they behave. Yep. Problem is... That's and you can actually use human cells for that, which is helpful because you're actually using human stuff. But you don't have any other of the other homeostasis chemicals, whatever going on. It doesn't really give you a very good picture. What it can do is it can tell you if something's like toxic to those cells in a certain dose. And as you know from previous studies, even that isn't particularly useful, right? Um, because you're not digesting it. It's what you drop on the cell isn't what you'd actually expose the cells to. There's mm-hmm. dose issues, all that kind of stuff, right? So. There's tons of issues with in vitro science. Um, and then in my stuff, what we knew is we wanted to improve um, something to do with scoliosis. And I won't go, I won't get into the nitty gritty. But no, we, but then you, we, you go from doing things in vitro yeah, and then all of a so sudden you're like, all right. Now we need we to come go. up with a good animal model. Yep. So what you, there's been 30, 40 years of people trying to come up with good animal models of scoliosis, right? Okay. But the problem is there's different reasons why you get scoliosis. And so it's not enough just to give an animal scoliosis and then try and do something to undo it because people get it for genetic reasons. But oftentimes it was happening for years and years was when they would do these experiments, they'd give the mice scoliosis through surgical. So they would create a scoliosis. They'd create a curve in the spine um, with surgery or something else like that. Uh, they might inject Botox into the spine to weaken one side so that the spine would curve, whatever, Right. But if that isn't the reason why the humans have it, well, then you can't really apply your treatment to that animal because it could be a completely different pathogenesis for that disease, Yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. right away, you have to make sure that just because you get the same outcome in the animal does mean you're going to be getting the same um, result of intervention with that animal. Mm. So there's a very, there used to be a very a sort of a superficiality to kind of these studies, I think. Well, well, I might just butt in quickly because yeah. um, in the 1990s, there was a cancer drug that was developed from mice mm-hmm. and it basically destroyed all of this particular type of cancer in mice and mm. left the mice like pretty much well, aside from that, perfect, right? Yeah. So people were heralding this as potentially the end of cancer, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then when it finally got put into humans, it was this lukewarm effect where it was pretty much nothing was, what wasn't really doing much good. And there's like a really great... Um, uh, quote that comes out of this the scientist that one of the critical scientists that we're dealing with it afterwards says that look if you have cancer and you are a mouse we can treat you yeah <laughs> which is great yeah it's true right um, um, endostatin 
Have you heard of endostatin? I, I've, oh, I know statins are um, a certain class of drug. I don't yeah. know endostatin Well, that was the drug, which yeah. I think it, it, from then, after it was a bit of a flop, right. they've, they've worked with it and now they've used, they're using it in certain parts, but it's far from the panacea right. that it was yeah. seeming to potentially be. So I, I just love that quote. Yeah. If you, if you, have, if you have cancer... And, and you are a mouse. mouse. We can treat you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, well, there's so much stuff we can do for animals, right? We know how to kill animals. We can yeah. we can knock them. We can expose them to blue light and kill them early. Yeah. We can you know extend their life with cancers. Humans, we don't know where to start. Yeah. Um, but y- y- your point is made that the actual way that the yeah. person develops scoliosis is probably going to be. And here's another thing: like, integral into even though we know, so we, mice, you know, are ninety-nine point whatever percent the same as genetically the same as humans. Yeah. So we think, great. So we know the genetic mutation in humans that causes this horrible disease that, of which scoliosis is one part of it, right? Well, we, we can knock out that gene in a mouse too. We can do the exact same thing that a human would have. We can create the exact same genetic condition of a human. And we go, well, sweet. This beats the whole like fake scoliosis issue. We can get down and we can then target any other problem that this disease has, right? We can use these mice to fix all the other issues that these humans tend to have. The problem is, even though we're so similar, we're still different enough that if you give a mouse the exact same mutation as a human, they die before they get born. For whatever reason... They die before they get... They don't... Yeah, it's, it's what we call embryonically lethal. Okay, right. The... They die in utero. The, okay. It's a programmed death. They know that they're not going to be a viable organism, and they just abort spontaneously. They get these heart malformations and all these kinds of other problems that we don't get, or at least not nearly as badly, and they can't survive. So they just, they die. Um, so right off the bat, here we are. We think we've got the best idea. We can come up with a like-for-like sort of recreation of the human condition. And we know that in this very simple situation, we can't actually do it. We've already, from the very beginning, we behave so differently with the same mutation. How can we ever hope to try the same therapies? Is it, that. is it a case of genes interrelating? I'm not sure. I know this is not your specialty yeah. genetics and stuff, but okay, we might have 99.96% or whatever the same genetics as a, as a mouse, right? Yeah. But is it a case of em- embryonics in terms of the actual, when, when they're in the embryo and stuff and yeah. and they're, them all interrelating with each other that might be different? Like, yeah, I it mean, could is be. That it? it could be. We also know from other experiments that we, we behave very differently to mice in terms of the way we react to certain phenomena in our bodies. Yeah. So, for example, when you actually do look at, at um, interventions with inflammation or with sort of the body's reaction to stress, um, and we can measure sort of the chemicals that flow in our body when we react to certain sort of traumas or medications and whatever else, uh, mice have a very different profile. So you could tell right away that if you look at them, very, very different way of re- reacting to injury or to anything like well, that. Well, here's the thing, right? Like yeah. there's something that's really obvious that we can all see. They might be 99.96 the same. I'm just yeah. creating that number. Yeah. If they're 99.96% the same as humans, look at them. Yeah, exactly. Like it, whatever, whatever made the difference in, you know, everything physical, yeah. whatever made that difference can also potentially make the difference in, you know, reactions to drugs, whatever, right? You know like, what? I'm... I'm a fairly progressive guy, and I'm going to say I don't think there is a difference between humans and mice. <laughs> yeah, that, I know you like, say there is, but genetically we're essentially identical, and I don't see any reason why there should be any manifestation of that in any. You think yeah, I don't? I think they yeah. could have the same jobs as us. Yeah, I think they they are. Some would say they're more capable than us at many skills. Yeah, 
Well, we both like cheese. We know that, right? I hate cheese. <laughs> Except you. Except me. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, so there's a lot of issues that make these these things really difficult to translate. So even when we can recreate the exact same conditions, or we think we are, we just can't rely upon our interventions actually doing anything. And also, I can tell you from personal experience, it is pretty bloody hard to kill a mouse. I mean, they just heal like super animals. They are much harder to hurt. They're, they heal faster. They just respond to injury in a very different way than we do. Mm. And so anything you do, let's say for cancer research, right, you're looking at obviously killing the cancer cells, but you're also be causing collateral damage with the healthy cells. Mm. The mice can heal much better than we can, which means any of those interventions will be way more effective with less collateral damage than in a human. Mm. So here's another example. So a, a drug that was designed to treat leukemia, yep. TGN1412, whatever, was tested in monkeys and was actually very well tolerated. Yep. Um, but in the initial phases of then putting it into human testing on humans, right, um, they put just one five hundredth of the safe monkey dose to six young men uh, in the first phase of clinical human trials in 2006. And the men immediately developed fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. Within hours, they were in an intensive care unit with multiple organ failure, and they only narrowly Survived. escaped death. Yeah, wow. one five hundredth. One five hundredth of the dosage that yeah. the monkeys were like, "Yes, yeah, sweet, we got this." And monkeys are closer than humans. Yeah, um, than closer. Mice. Yeah, yeah. But so the issue in this case was the the drug's target, which is a protein on certain immune cells. Mm -hmm. It binds more strongly to human immune cells and triggers a rapid release of chemicals involved in yeah. inflammation. This is really interesting because one of the first stages you go through with FDA testing, right, is FDA testing for safety. Before you even get to... Is it FDA in the States, you mean? FDA, <laughs> TGA here. Yeah, so Federal T T Drug Administration. administration yeah, something. yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and here's the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Got it. Right, so you have to make sure that what you're giving people is at very least not going to kill them before you prove that it's actually going to be helpful to them. Yeah. Right? So if we can't even determine whether a drug is can be translated as safe from an animal to a human, from a, from a monkey to a human, yeah. a lot of people are, and, you know, are saying, is there any point wasting time on animal studies at all? Or mm. are we just spinning our wheels, mm. drumming up papers in the process when really it's not doing a whole lot in terms of actual translation. And I think there's a strong argument to be made for many things in that context that we do all this work to cure animal diseases, but we're not really doing a whole lot to kill to cure human diseases in the That's process. Right. Like your thing said, right? Um, it's like if your cancer exists inside a Petri dish, we got yeah. it covered. We but got that is, shit down. We, we, we got it killed and you'll be fine. Yeah. Just so long as you're in a Petri dish. There is a stopgap though. There is something in between. And you remember my friend Jad. I do. Yeah, so Jad... Hard to forget someone with a name like Jad. I know. Uh, so Jad was doing some of his research over at UNSW, uh, at the cancer center there. Yep. Um, I think he was looking into lymphomas. I'm pretty sure. But what they would do is, they would take the tumors from the people, the cancer cells, and then inject those into mice. Now, they, the mice would be bred to be uh, immunocompromised, which means they wouldn't form a reaction to these different cells. So if you get a transplant from someone who's not matched to you, an organ transplant, your body would reject it, right? Um, so we give you anti-rejection medication to, to stop that. But basically what we're doing is we're dampening your immune system. Yeah. So they would breed mice that are basically already dampened immune systems, so much so that they cannot just take cells from another mouse, they can take human cells and wow. not react. And they'd be like, sweet, 
We're cool. And then, because they're not uh, reacting to those, the cancer cells keep on growing in their body like they were in the host, the original human host. And then we can test them. And then we can test the drugs. And then the idea was they were testing a whole slew of drugs. And they could do is say, we have 50 drugs here. And we know that one of them might be better for you than another one. Now, instead of giving you all 50, we don't know which one to give you, we take your cancer cells, put them into 50 mice, treat those 50 mice, and see which of those tumor cells have the greatest response to which medication, and then we can give you that medication. And these, and these would all be drugs that we know are safe already. Yeah. We just don't know which one to give for, right. for a particular kind of cancer. Yeah. So in that sense, you get the sort of expendability of animal studies and the scalability of animal studies um, with the benefit of using human cells that are in an organism and not in a petri dish. So you're kind of combining the best parts of the petri dish with the best parts of the animal. And does that translate well to human cells inside human bodies? Certainly better than... My cells inside my bodies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think there's probably some more avenues for that to make mm. some, some differences. Um, so that's a pretty cool thing that we can do. But that's only good for cancers, right? You can't I test you, other actually, things. You know what? That. You know what we're going to do? What? We're going to catch those hogs in Texas. Yep. Test all these things on hogs. Rather than kill them, rather than get, you know... And pigs are basically human. Well, they are, right? right? Exactly. Exactly. Solves two problems in one. We've just solved two of the... Uh, World's greatest problems. Yeah. We've cured cancer and gotten rid of the feral hogs. <laughs> Unless, well, unless we cure the cancer, in which case we've cured the socks as well. <laughs> we've got to be careful. Suddenly, we have a financial incentive <laughs> to, to, kill the, to keep the hogs around. Well, there's that swine fever thing that they could be exposed to that, and that'd be a good night, Sally, for a lot of them. Should be. Also for the entire pig population. Pig population and industry yeah. in the States. And that's one of the issues they're worried about there is that if, if there are any genetic things that spread in the pig population, it could also kill not just the domestic. You know, not just pork the wild industry, pigs, but, the, but yeah. there are also a huge amount of money comes from exporting pigs as well, and they would never yeah. let those be. So there's a huge kind of economic uh, problem with trying to goof around with uh, the domestic pig population. All right, I think <coughs> that'll do us. What do you reckon? Whew. It's jeremysiron.com if you want to check out what we do. There's uh, animations and stuff. We've got a couple yeah. more in the works. We do a few things. We've got patches and... We have a name for our listeners now. Oh, yeah. Iron if Men. If you've listened all the way to the end of this podcast, yeah. we bequeath to you the name. Iron Men. Iron Man slash Iron Woman. Welcome. And we're not saying that there are two options. Everyone is an Iron Man slash Iron Woman. I see. <laughs> That's yeah. the demonym for our listeners. <laughs> yeah. We're so woke. Iron we're, so, we're so woke, we don't go gender neutral. We go both. Both. <laughs> yeah. Take your pick. <laughs> all right. Iron Man, women. We're out. Like We're out. Till next week. I like it. <laughs> now I know. Before we get there. Mm-hmm. You're hot. You you got some s- stuff to talk about. I know you've been gagging to, to release some of this on air. So yeah. uh, what what do you got? Well, look, I, I'm ready. You make it. You really build it up. It's this not, had, you were like, this is the best thing I've ever going to be sharing on the podcast. You told me I want to have at least ten minutes at the front of the show. I didn't say that because I'm going to. 
wow our audience. All right. Well, here we go. This one, you've heard some of these before. All right. <laughs> some me. of these what deep thoughts. This one is brand new. This is hot off the press. This is uh, This came across my desk last night. Yep. Uh, now, what do we love more than anything? Uh, besides Asian- What unites us? A lot of things. Beck's beer can? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and not, not a can of Beck's beer. No. But the song Beer Can by Beck. Exactly. Probably the only song we both like. We hate a lot of the same songs. We do. A hatred of similar songs. That's yep. true. Hatred I, of Summer of 69. There's something big that time. binds us. Big time. By blood. And you too. A and hatred Queen. of you too. Yeah, we both hate you too and Queen. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Not, not winning any fans. No. <laughs> no. Not Levine. That's for sure. Nah. Um, no, I think we both like words. Yeah. Words, uh, wordplay. We like the meanings of words. We like the significance of words. Yeah, we're the, we're the onomasticators, right? We are the onomasticators. And... We talk a lot about, I mean, look, we guise it under sort of uh, a lot of talk about band albums and band names and song titles and things like that, right? But I think we like words and names. Even our names are a source of, you know, great amusement for us. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, when uh, people meet us and they say, oh, that's easy, that's because we have the same name. Ah, uh, yeah. You didn't Good. know what that was about. No, I understand now. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I was out with some mates last night and... Um, I found out that a friend of mine had a child a few months ago. Now, I knew she had a child. I haven't seen her yet. Um, so I, that, that wasn't news to me. But I didn't know the child's name. You didn't? No. Right. And I found out the name was Chloe. Whatever. But we have a good old, another school friend from the same, from the same group whose name is Chloe. Yeah. And she's been friends with the mother of this child for like their whole lives. Yeah. But, which, so I'm like, okay, cool. So obviously in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Chloe was named after Chloe. Fine. Barely worth thinking about. Yeah. And this has happened to a few of my friends before who I know, a good friend, who's had another friend who's had a child and who's used the same name. Yeah. Right? It happens. Yeah, my, my good friend Alex named, from the my old band, yeah. named her son Dylan. Not right. necessarily after Dylan, but it was just Well, like this a good is band. the issue. So this is the thing, right? So... Her friend Dylan, after, the leader singer of the band. After I found out the kid's name was Chloe, that was, that was sort of... Uh, there's a caveat, which is, oh, by the way, but not after Chloe. And I was like, well, here's the thing. If you know someone that well and for that long and their name is part of your DNA, yeah. it is after that person. 100%. There's no way it's yeah. not. Yeah. And you can, you can say all you want. Oh, it's not. Na-. Now, the only one it wouldn't work for is me and you because I could just claim it's after me. I understand that. But see, the, the, there's a funny, it's a weird thing because you think you'd, you'd just let them think it's about them. Yeah. Why would you take that away? Like you get to. Because they think it's weird. Oh, no, it's not. I'd be a little bit... If there are any friends listening of mine and that haven't been turned away from this podcast in the first 24 episodes, feel free. They haven't even started listening to this podcast, let alone been turned away yet. It's true. Name your child, Justin. I would be flattered. Feel free. I've been saying that for years, but if they actually did it, I think I'd be a little bit weirded out. You reckon? Yeah. Little Justin? What's my friend, Max? Yeah. I think he's got two friends that call their kids Max. And he's like, oh, but it's not after me. And I I know one of our friends in common is like, oh, it wasn't after Max. I'm like... No, but it is though. Like, okay. isn't it? Isn't by definition after that person? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. Yeah. So I think that's bullshit. Okay. So this is your this is your that's hot. It. Of, all right. That's that's start of the press. Yeah. From the same conversation, also, Dave was one of my old high school friends who I was out with last night. Said, uh, "Hey, by the way, you want some real science? I've got really sore knees. Someone told me to, someone told me to take turmeric." <laughs> and my knees are tons better. Yeah. And I said, no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> he said, yes, they are. I said, no, they aren't. 
And that went on for about five minutes. And he's like, no, trust me, they are. And I was like, no, trust me. But was he taking turmeric over the course of the amount of time that would heal the knees, knees in the first place? Is this like a, a real time time machine situation? <laughs> no. It's like all you, all you need to do is just take turmeric for the next three weeks and then your knees will, will get no, better. I just think, just leave, them, leave them rested. I think he sprinkled his toes with turmeric for a week. Oh, it's not even, not even ingesting it. He's just rubbing it on the knees. <laughs> Topical. Yeah, look... You know where you stand, I think, mm. when someone offers you the treatment of you should just yeah. have a lot of turmeric. Which, to be fair, I was thinking, you know, I, I went through a phase of trying to have a lot of turmeric and yep. stuff because I thought it was all good for me. And Yeah. Yep. But the old adage stands, if it's as good... The old cabbage. Well, well, if it's that good for you, it would be prescribed. Mm-hmm. Right? We Your prescribe doctors. exercise. We prescribe things that aren't, you know, part of the big money machine. They say, exactly. you know, stay away from these kinds of foods. Yeah. Stay away from fatty foods. Blah yeah. blah. Your doctor would be like, you know what? Have a bit of turmeric. But look, a lot of our best medications began as natural medications, right? Aspirin, for example, comes from a bark of a tree. Like, you know, and now we just call it medicine because yeah. we know that it works. We're not against that stuff. Yeah. And for those people listening who are doubting our. Uh, you don't, think we're, you don't think we're open-minded. Check out our previous episode. I think it was our second or third episode. We, we, it was one of the, the founding fathers of this podcast was an episode on turmeric. So you can go back and listen to mm-hmm. our deep dive into why turmeric yeah, is it was not like all the, banged up to the, be. In the first five, right? Yeah. 